So I wanted to revisit last week a little bit uh, before we move into to this week. We're looking at Micah chapter 6 this week. But last week we looked at uh, Psalm 27, and we kind of talked about the Psalms in general and how they help us um, live lives that are present to the presence of God, whatever seasons we're going through. Um, they, they show us that we can engage with God on a heart level, whatever we're going through, whatever's coming uh, our way. And the key was, is, was, we found was bringing ourselves, our hearts, to the reality of God's character that's revealed in Scripture and ultimately revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, my daughter had a great analogy for this the other day, and she didn't realize it. She was playing with a balloon, and she, she discovered that uh, if you turn off the lights and hold up a flashlight to a balloon, have you ever done this? The balloon just is ablaze with light and fills up with light. And I thought, that's like our hearts when we let the reality of God, the reality of, of Christ revealed in Scripture, uh, color our world. Uh, we see the incredible reality and possibility of lives lived in God and Christ uh, when we allow uh, his character to, to shine in and illuminate I also wanted to say, kind of revisiting next week and then, uh, or last week and then coming uh, to the scripture this morning, that there's a major presupposition that I didn't mention last week. Uh, something that has to be acknowledged as true for any of this to make sense in any way. And this is implicit in the Psalms. And it's reve- revealed for us uh, definitively in the life of Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection. And here's, here's the presupposition, here's the truth that has to be true for any of this to make sense, and it's this. That God reigns over all. That God is king. That God's in power. That he's in control. That he rules. He creates. He redeems. He sustains. And that's true all the time. And every time, in every place. That's the presupposition. Even when it doesn't look like it, God reigns. This is what makes the ups and downs of life okay. So you know that God reigns. God's in control. And this is incredibly good news for us. But we'd be sorely mistaken if we just took this, took this the reality of God's reign, and took this as just sort of a personal heart lesson to sort of get through the day a little bit better. Um, the life that's illuminated by God in his reign is a life that's to be transformed so that we can be a conduit of God's reign and presence in the world, in a world that so sorely needs it. We're to be embodied examples of the heart of God, what the heart of God looks like in the world. We're to be a picture of the reign of God in Christ. Now you're probably thinking, that's, that's a big challenge. It is a daunting challenge. It's a huge challenge. And as Paul says, we're foolish and weak. God knows that. But he's chosen us to be a picture, a sample of his reign in the world. And this is really what the prophets do, too, as we turn to, to Micah now. Is they, they show us, they remind us that God reigns, but you're not living like it. And, and they invite us, they challenge, challenge us to return to the reality of God's reign and whatever our context happens to be. So I'm going to read now Micah 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. It can be found, you know, if you're reading along in the Pew Bible on page 923. Um, and this, the, the Pew Bible is the NIV. 
So Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this word from Micah uttered so long ago, but so important for us now. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So a word from Micah. It's always a little bit dangerous just jumping right into uh, the words of the prophet in chapter 6. Just jumping right in there. Well, it's dangerous for us and how it lives our lives, but also uh, in terms of interpretation, uh, it's important to look a little bit at the context in which Micah uh, prophesied and spoke. So I want to give you a little bit of background on Micah. So actually a lot is not known about Micah himself, the prophet. He uh, was kind of a country boy. He was from the plains in the south of Judah. He uh, was a villager, and he was mostly unfamiliar with Jerusalem, which is actually kind of really helpful when you read his works. Uh, he was a contemporary of Isaiah, and Isaiah had a little bit more of a focus on Jerusalem. Um, so Micah brings a kind of a different perspective, uh, one in touch with some of the social ills uh, at play in village life, um, in his time, and he was prophesying in the late 8th century, early part of the 7th B.C., uh, in a time when the kingdom of Judah was facing a tremendous geopolitical threat from the superpower of the day, which was the Assyrian Empire. They were to the north. And uh, during the time which Micah prophesied, uh, the northern kingdom, uh, Israel, uh, the kingdom of Israel, actually fell in 722, the hands of uh, Assyria. The capital, Samaria, uh, fell in 722, was captured. And Assyria, when King, uh, it's hard for me to say his, say his name, Sennacherib, 
Sennacherib, I don't know if anybody knows how to say it, you can, you can share, share it, but he was the uh, son of Sargon II, and he came into power, and he was threatening, he was at the doors of Jerusalem in 701, and it looked really bad. Uh, there, this is when King Hezekiah was, was in power and control in Judah. But God intervened dramatically to spare uh, Jerusalem, and the Syrian troops were turned back. All this to say, this was a time of extreme sort of anxiety and distress and impending disaster. This is the time in which Micah prophesied. And it, just to remind you, if you need reminding, it was not a pretty sight being conquered in those days. It, it never is, but especially then when it meant that you were put to, be, put to death or enslaved and relocated. So think about that with families of elders and children. You would be um, killed or or enslaved and relocated. So again, Micah, into this troubled situation, prophesied. And he spoke of this. He spoke of God's anger with Judah. He spoke of their out-of-whack relationship with God. He talked about the vertical element and also the out-of-whack relationships with others, the way they were relating as a society. He he, uh, spoke... Uh, the Lord's word into this, this setting, in this context. Uh, in their vertical relationship, they were involved with pagan worship. They would go, Micah says, to the high places to uh, worship foreign deities, um, worship idols. It was out of whack. Uh, and then not only that, but the, the prophets who were around, a lot of the prophets were false prophets saying, oh, everything's fine, prosperity lies ahead with us. Micah said, no, it's, it's not okay. It's not fine. Uh, the Lord is, is angry. And then on the horizontal level, uh, Micah cites oppressi, uh, oppressive, greedy landowners who were usurping land for their own gain. Uh, there was a bigger divide between the wealthy and the poor. Um, the leaders, he indicts, as being corrupt. Uh, saying in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, that they were perverting equity and that they hated justice. Their, their vertical relationship with God's out of whack and their horizontal relationships are out of whack. Yet even though there's this judgment from the Lord and, and this indictment, this accusation against him, Mike provides a word of hope for future hope. Uh, he says their future, even in the midst of all this, could be something to, to look forward to. Um, could be something that, that God can make right because of his steadfast love, because of his mercy and forgiveness. So it's important to realize that for Micah, um, the problem wasn't out there with the Assyrians. The problem was, was, was there with them. Um, it's easy to look out there, but Micah said, look inside here a little bit. And the prophet's job, Micah's job, was to wake him up to the reality. He's saying, you're not living like God reigns. And we can see it at all levels. So let's look now at Micah 6. Zoom in here with a little bit of context now. So through Micah, the Lord indicts his people. And he does it in the sight of creation. In sight of the foundations of the earth. Look at verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. 
Basically, the Lord is asking, why is your behavior so out of alignment from how I've treated you? It's kind of like the reaction when somebody is treating us badly and we're not sure why. It's kind of like, did I, did I say something? Did I do something? Why, why are you so behaving this way? Why, why is your relationship with me so, so wrong? What did I do? And of course, the Lord knows he's not done anything wrong. This is all on the people. Um, so Micah moves from there to, to talking about the way the Lord has been gracious, the way the Lord has interacted with them. He calls the Lord's saving action in, in their midst. And he calls them to remember this. Remember how um, I've been with you. And it's not to rub it in, but to show that the, loves, that the Lord's love and faithfulness has endured. He recalls their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Not only that, but how the Lord's provided leaders for them. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. I love the shout-out to the woman leader. I love that. Then he recalls a sort of lesser-known incident, incident about King Balak of, of Moab. This can be found in, found in Numbers 22 through 25. Uh, it's a really interesting story, but it highlights Balaam, who, though a foreigner, speaks of God's faithfulness and, and righteous saving acts. So it's clear, according to Micah, that for Judah to operate in the present in a way that honors the Lord, they need to remember the Lord's faithfulness in their past. And this is important for us, too, as we think about our future. When the future seems bleak or the present seems uh, too much to bear, the Lord calls us to remember. Remember how uh, he's been present in our past. important to remember what the Lord has done in our life, to, to recall his, his grace to us. A major symptom of our sin is a short memory. So after uh, Micah sort of provides the Lord's indictment to them and, and calls them to remember, the next question is, okay, so how do we respond to that? Uh, how is Judah to respond to this indictment? Verse six, uh, Micah, in verse six and seven, Micah lists the different sort of sacrifices and offerings they, they may be sort of tempted to bring to the Lord as, as a response. Shall I bring, you know, first calves a year old? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of olive oil, firstborn? For my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. What can I give to the Lord to clear myself of this charge? Of course, this sort of relationship to God gets, gets it all wrong, this idea that we could bring something to the Lord to appease him. None of these things are sufficient, no matter how costly the gift. And the Lord does not need any of these things. What would any of these sacrifices accomplish? The world's already his. Can you imagine the Lord thinking to himself, I would love a river of olive oil. That would be great. That would make my triune life complete. I mean, that might make my life complete, but uh, not the Lord's. But the fitting response to the love and faithfulness of, of the God who reigns is to become the sort of people that reflect the love and faithfulness of God in the world people that reflect the reality of the reign of God in their very life. 
And this plays out in horizontal and uh, in horizontal and vertical spirituality. Micah says we're to, he's, that he's shown it. He's made it plain. We're to act justly, to love mercy in our, in our relationships and in our social structures. And, and through and in, and, and, um, in a way to affect that is actually to walk humbly with our God. That's the thing that ties it all together. So it's key to realize that that ethic in Micah 6, 8 is an ethic of response. Judah is not to do this so that the Lord would choose them. It's because they were chosen beneficiaries of the love and grace of God that they're to live seeking justice um, and live with kindness and mercy and with humility. Um, so I'd like to spend actually the rest of our time uh, this morning, there's, there's a lot, I'm not going to be able to get to all of it, thinking about how we may live responsively into this uh, ethic. We are those who have benefited from the saving work of God in Christ, those of us who have put our faith in Christ. Now, how do we live that faith out uh, wherever we are? This is a great summary uh, of an ethic of, of, of response to God's grace. So let's lean into it. So how do we act justly? Well, in short, this means to relate rightly to the world, doing things fairly correct, correctly, not passively, but it means to actively seek what is just and right. This affects every level of life. There's so much there. You can think about the way you eat, the way you drive a car, the way you relate to your kids, your parents. Uh, God calls us to justice on all these sort of micro, micro uh, levels. How we steward creation's resources. All this stuff matters to God. But in Micah, it's clear that this is not just sort of an individualistic thing. This is for a community to embody. There are macro-level systems out there that God calls us to justice in. You know, people are, in his day and age, people were seizing fields, and, and they were, uh, leaders were leading corruptly. Um, and this needed a change. Um, this is a society uh, that, that needed to repent, needed to live into the justice that God has revealed. Now, there's really an active sense to this, too. It's not just, you know, seek justice or when it kind of comes to you. It's, it, there's a sort of active, active engagement with uh, the culture one finds um, himself in. It's, it's not passive. It's seeking, active, um, working for, for justice, for right relationships at all levels of society. Um, of course, this should lead us to a couple really important questions for us here in, in our modern context. The question is, okay, seek justice. Well, what is justice? Whose justice is it? How do we know what is right? Um, for us followers of Christ, justice is not whatever flavor of the day political causes out there, but it's the ethic that's been revealed by God in history and through Jesus Christ. And we could, again, spend all day unpacking what the ethical implications are for us. Um, but the important part is to realize that our sense of justice doesn't come from our own just thinking about it. It comes from God. It comes from what's revealed in the story of Israel and in the person of Christ. Again, it's like scripture coming in and bringing light. That's our justice. A couple quick points of what that justice looks like. Um, a couple great, I think, foundations to think that if 
that if these, these aspects are missing, then this isn't biblical justice. And, and one point, the first point is this, that all people are made in the image of God. And because of that, they're, uh, they're accord- they, sh- they should be afforded dignity and respect. Uh, we are made to flourish. We are created uh, with the creator that created us in his image. And that calls us to, um, to seek human flourishing. Again, a lot to unpack there. So if that's missing, then it's not really biblical justice. Here's the other thing, too. is that all throughout Scripture, special attention is, is given to the, to the weak, to the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. This is consistent throughout Scripture. So it's hard to have a biblical sense of justice if there's not special attention given to the most vulnerable in society. Here's the next question. What does this mean for us who live in a modern, pluralistic nation now? What does it mean for us to seek justice on a corporate level, given that we live in, a, in the modern democracy that we live in. Again, huge topic. Much ink has been spilt on this. Uh, much blood has been spilt on this topic. So again, I can just touch on it. Here's the thing. Um, I think this is a word first and foremost for the church. Um, we are, the church are to embody, through the power of the Holy Spirit, what justice looks like what it looks like for the reign of God to be embodied. This isn't about voting a certain way. I think it's about being a people that gives people outside the body of Christ a taste of the reign of God, the kingdom of God. This doesn't mean not to be politically involved or to ignore the fact that the government has a God-given role in ensuring justice and protecting the weak. But I think when we imagine that the command to seek justice is centrally about having a certain political party in control, we get it all wrong. We need involvement in real lives, in real communities. We can't abdicate that to, to, to a government. Everything's so political these, these days. I, I, think, um, I think what we can do through um, incarnating uh, the justice of God um, will be such a, a fresher picture of the justice of God. God created the church as his means of, of witness, not, not the nation, not the nation state. Um, there's great stories about how this plays out in so many different contexts. And um, there's a great story I, I'd like to share. I won't share it this morning because it's too long, but a great story of a covenant church in Oakland that found itself living lives with people who were suffering injustice. And um, because of their life and life, life on life, uh, commitment to, to relationship. Um, they were able to walk alongside people as they sought, uh, as they sought justice. Uh, it's a story of New Hope Covenant Church in East Oakland. And uh, wonderful story. So you can Google that or something. They, they decided um, instead of building the church in the community they were in, they built a tutoring center. Uh, and they, they put it in the, sort of right in the heart of, of all the difficulty that that community was going through. Um, but they wouldn't have known it, uh, the New Hope Community uh, Church, uh, if they hadn't had skin in the game, if they hadn't uh, loved the community in a relational way. Okay, so seek justice, love mercy. Now, mercy can also be translated kindness. So we are to seek justice and to love mercy and kindness. You can see how those things kind of work together. So God shows us uh, in the scripture that mercy is not opposed to justice, but it's its perfect complement partner. 
Um, is not the justice of God, his righteousness revealed in the mercy of Christ, the mercy of the cross. Our, our being just before God, our being right, depends upon his overture of kindness and mercy towards us. Uh, because in Christ we see that the, that the justice of God is not punitive. That is, God's idea of justice is actually embodied in sacrificial love and in kindness. Check this out. Jesus took on the punishment rightfully ours. He took on sin. He took on death. So that those who would put their trust in him would not experience it. God's justice is his self-emptying kindness. God's justice is his mercy. This is mysterious to me and, and beautiful. So our God, uh, who is kind, who is merciful, who is just, calls us again as a, community to imbo- uh, as a community to embody his kindness, his mercy in the world. And there are so many ways, again, in which the church can reach out. What this means, though, um, I think centrally, is that we're not a community that's just about tolerance, that just puts up or ignores shortcomings called to far more than that. We're a community that's about forgiveness and grace and embraces where people are at, even if they don't deserve it, maybe especially because they don't deserve it. Called to be a community who can't wait for the opportunity to show mercy, to show the kindness of God. Again, this is a challenging, daunting task. Mercy can be manifested in tangible gifts uh, or through expressions of forgiveness. Uh, I can't help think of the story of the Amish community that experienced the, the tragic school shooting in October of 2006. Just an awful, awful event uh, when the shooter came in and shot 10 young girls raging from age 6 to 13, and five of them ended up passing away. He didn't know these kids. They just were in the wrong place at the wrong time and, and were victims of utter, complete, senseless evil the opposite of the reign of God. But this Amish community um, was a community of mercy. They were shaped by the gospel of Jesus over decades, over centuries. And to an astonished media, there were soon reports of an incredible, almost unthinkable Amish response. Uh, A spokesperson from the shooter's family uh, shared that an Amish neighbor came over just hours after the shooting to, to comfort uh, the shooter's family and, and to offer forgiveness, offer mercy. The Amish community members would continue to comfort the, shooter, uh, the shooter's widow and, and parents. There was one report of an Amish man holding and embracing the shooter's father for like an hour, just hours after the shooting. Mercy. Um, the Amish community went on to set up a charitable, charitable fund for the family of the shooter. 30 community members attended the funeral of the shooter. This was who they are and how they live. They embody the mercy of God in ways that the world sees 
frankly, I see and have a hard time comprehending because it's so alien from the cycle of revenge that dominates. You notice how their response wasn't just an intellectual one, a theological one? Oh, I, you know, have to kind of explain why really bad things happen good people. No, that there, theirs was an embodied response to the presence of evil. Um, and now when anybody talks about that shooting, you can't but mention the beautiful, astonishing act of the Amish. Of course, this stuff, this embodiment of God's justice and mercy can't happen without humility. Because chiefly, this is not from us. It can't be from us. Our Justice is crooked. Our mercy is short-lived, but God's is not. So we are called, as Micah tells us, to walk humbly with our God. It's about living into the, uh, the heart that the God has shown. Um, so this means we're not allowed to be self-righteous activists, because no activist is self-righteous, right? No, it's a, it's a temptation. Um, but humble, we're, we're called to be humble people that chafe, chase after what God's doing in the world tapping into the power that he provides, um, that vertical relationship of love and mercy will flow out horizontally through us and in spite of us, fools and weaklings. Again, God reigns and we're just helping others to uncover this reality. And this is how we avoid burnout when we see a world that's so in need of, of justice and mercy. Praise be to God, the world does not rest on our shoulders. Jesus has overcome. So there, there's no need to be triumphalistic. Um, we are prone to get things wrong. We are to walk with God with humility. So for you, um, for us, what does it mean to embody justice and mercy where we're at? In your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. Maybe God's prompting you to, to reach out uh, with justice and mercy to a place um, that you're afraid to go. We with uh, the homeless, the recovery community. There's people doing stuff with human tra- trafficking. You don't have to look hard to see where there's need of justice. Uh, I think the, the, the important part, uh, the vital part for us, is to create space to hear where God might be calling us to go and to go in his power. Um, I invite you to pray with me uh, about this. Lord, uh, this is a startling word for for me, for us. Um, You've made it plain how to live. We're to reflect you and your reign. We live in a world that doesn't seem to reflect that. But empower us with the Holy Spirit um, to be light here uh, in what seems so dark. Because of your kindness, your mercy, your justice, your love. We pray it all through Christ our Lord. Amen.